You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Saturday, May 19th, Harvard Kennedy School's 2018 reunion featured a discussion titled Politics, Populism, and Democracy. What's next in the United States and around the world? The talk, held in JFK Junior Forum, featured Archon Fung, academic dean and Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government, Marshall Gans, mid-career MPA 1993, senior lecturer in public policy, and Pippa Norris, Paul F. McGuire lecturer in comparative politics. Let's listen in. In the United States, I don't think polarization is made up. I think it's very real. So public opinion polls tell us that record numbers of Democrats, I think around 41, 42% now, feel that Republicans are a fundamental threat to the nation's well-being. The percentage of Republicans that feel the same way about Democrats is about 45%. Record numbers of Americans say they would be very, very upset if someone in their family married someone from the other political party. It's higher than another race or another religion now by a lot, right? So I don't think that's made up. It's real. And indeed, according to political scientists, America is more polarized now than at any time since Civil War and Reconstruction. You know, think about that. That's a serious challenge. Uh, it's worth reflecting upon that, right? The last time, I think the, the greatest American leader who's faced similar cha- or, uh, great challenges po- of polarization is Abraham Lincoln. And in the first inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln was making a plea, if you remember the first inaugural address, he was making a plea to all of America to try to overcome its polarization in order to avoid war, right? Remember what he said? He said, we are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. This pa- a passion has strained but, not, but must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely they must be by the better angels of our nature. They were not touched by the better angels of our nature. We had a civil war, 600,000 Americans killed each other in that civil war, and we think of him as a great president because the North won. But that's not, it didn't have to work out that way. I think there was a little bit of moral luck in that happening, and the Civil War could have gone a different way with a very different set of outcomes for social justice. Right? So I think in this time of division, part of our role, part of the Kennedy School's role, as with the Civil War, is twofold. It's very complicated, it's twofold. It's not morally symmetric, as my friend Marshall uh, <laughs> constantly drills into me as he should. It's not morally symmetric. I do not regard the moral stance of the North and the South as morally equal in the era before the Civil War. But nevertheless, the polarization created a circumstance in which bridging and mutual understanding and accommodation was very important to accomplish. And if he could have accomplished that, um, I think that would have been quite an achievement worth having. So think about Uh, these two features, insurgency and polarization, and many others as we talk, engage in this discussion about where we are now with regard to the state of democracy, and in particular with the, quote, populist movements that we're seeing uh, all over the place, all over the world right now. 
Uh, and with that, oh, you, I was ready to introduce Pippa and Marshall. But, uh, you've already been introduced, my very good friends, Pippa Norris and Marshall Gans here with us today. And uh, we've prepared a few questions. Uh, the first of which is, um, for uh, one, uh, one, uh, Pippa go first and then Marshall. How do you think about this moment that we're in? How did we get here and how do you characterize the moment? So let's pick up on some of the points which you just made and some of the audience as well. After all, we're sitting in a very international audience surrounded by flags, it's not just Trump. And as we say, if you think about Germany, AFD, the major opposition party suddenly emerging, France, the National Front, Italy, the Five Star Movement, Britain, Brexit, UKIP. And then further afield, we've got people like Duterte, we have people like uh, those, like Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. So it's a broad pattern. And what do they have in common? I think we have to be a bit clear. Populism has been the kind of word that everybody's talking about. What does it actually mean? I think it means two things, and this is from our book. Um, we've written a new book on this called Cultural Backlash with my colleague Ron Inglehart. It's the most difficult book to write by the way, because although I've written actually about 50 books, this was the one that was the most personal. This was the one that was most difficult to really disentangle from my feelings to my work as a social scientist. So there's two things. One is essentially that populists say that we don't want elites, meaning those in authority, those in DC, those in parliaments, those in legislatures, those who are judges, seen as betraying the people in Brexit, those who are experts, including, I'm afraid, everybody sitting on this field, on this area. Nobody at Harvard, obviously, they all get kicked out. <laughs> so it's about coming back to ordinary people. And the second claim is that ordinary people is where the virtue is. So elites are corrupt. It's not just they're wrong. It's not just that they're mis 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 misunderstanding things. It's that they're corrupt in a broad sense. So we need to get the people power. Now, that's democratic, right? In some ways, participation, after all, is very much part of Archon's work, the Ash Center. The problem is that what you do when you bring populists into power with this revolutionary insurgency is that you open the door for authoritarians. And by authoritarians, what we mean is strong men leaders who essentially emphasize loyalty to me, to the individual, who emphasize obedience to convention, certain standards, and who want to have basically security. And that appeals to a lot of people. So populism in itself isn't the problem, but when it links to strongman leaders, about which there are many around the world right now, that's a very potent appeal. And it's really difficult for liberal Democrats, it's very difficult for pluralists to stand against that. Because after all, the claim is that this is real democracy. This is the power of the people, and therefore our guard is down. So that's how I see the situation. And the main threat is the norms in democratic societies that we all work with, whether it's the free press, tolerance, trust, partisan polarization, meaning that we really are at worlds apart. And then it's also a fundamental threat, particularly in many of the hybrid states, many of the hybrid regimes, which were new democracies, places like Hungary, that were moving forward, increasing their growth really pushing forward in a variety of different ways and have suddenly gone backwards very, very sharply for human rights and for uh, a variety of different ways that the opposition can be effective. So those are the real threats. And how far the social norms and the threat on our informal norms of how we work in America, whether those can kind of come back 
whether we can rebuild them. After all, we know that they are very strong in lots of ways. The role of the judiciary, pushing back the role of the free press, the role of pro pro uh, people who are protesting, pink cats and all. All of that is a healthy side that the resistance is strong to these tendencies, which I regard as actually anti-American. But whether or not there's going to be fundamental shifts which are going to institutionalize Trump, which are going to institutionalize authoritarianism, we just don't know. And again, that was one of the difficult things of writing the book, that we know that there are threats on the horizon, we know there are fundamental risks, but we know that there's resilience as well. And so the future is still being written as we speak about this. And I think certain indicators could be that it's not simply the individual. If the GOP recruits a lot of candidates in Trump's model, then that's a problem, because it's not just the individual, but it's going to last after that. If the Democratic Party can't get its act together and can't really find an effective platform, an effective leader, an effective voice, and knows, hasn't got a clue about how to respond to this, then that's a fundamental problem. And of course, all the destabilization about Mueller and the constant cloud over the White House is a major threat um, to all of our uh, democratic norms. So we've got a big question mark. We can't answer it right now. Things are still unfolding, but certainly things are not good. Uh, but they're worse, I think, still in other, other countries which have really gone back a lot further. Venezuela, I'd, I'd argue, has, is really dramatically bad right now. Uh, the Philippines and many other places around the world. Marshall. Can I use the podium? Already? Yes. <coughs> I, think I, I don't need know. A, I think we need to bring it out a little bit. Yeah, I may need a pulpit here. Well. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Thanks, sir. So, so good morning. <laughs> That's pretty good. Good morning. <laughs> All right. And a special hello to uh, my classmates of the <laughs> mid-career class of 1993. That's awesome. <laughs> Still walking around. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a real uh, privilege to have an opportunity for this uh, time this morning to reflect on where we are. Uh, Tom Hayden, the organizer and act activist, once said, change is slow except when it's fast. Um, and fast moments, moments of flux, of contingency, of danger and opportunity. June 6th, it on June 6th, it will be just 50 years since the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy in 1968, an event in which it was my, I'm not quite sure how to put it, um, to be present. Um, because we had been organizing farm workers to turn out the vote in Latino Los Angeles for the senator. And um, that night, it felt a bit like history was slipping through our fingers like sand. This is another fast moment. Because fast moments, what happens is that um, chickens come home to roost. Uh, we have to confront inconvenient truths. Small differences can yield big changes and the choices that we make really do matter. But just like that moment 50 years ago, this one had many years in the making. Uh, political scientist Sidney Verba uh, observed that liberal democracy is a gamble that equality of voice can balance inequality of resources. Uh, the question, can the power of public citizenship expressed through democratic governance, employing the rule of law, balance the power of private ownership expressed through the deployment of private wealth.
can the politics, can the power of politics balance the power of money? In the US, balancing voice and resources has been challenging, not only because of the historical inequalities of race, class, and gender, but also because of the inequality built into the electoral system crafted 250 years ago to preserve the power of local elites, slave states and free states, small states and large states, the result being single-member districts with first-by-the-post uh, elections that mean that 51% of the voters get 100% of the representation and 49% get nothing. The gerrymandering by incumbents to protect their own seats or maintain uh, partisan advantage make, less, uh, uh, make elections increasingly less competitive and less representative. The Electoral College gives voters in New York, California, and Illinois no incentive to vote reduces turnout and allows losers to become presidents, as is the case with our last two Republican presidents, elected by minorities. In the Senate, 400,000 citizens who live in Wyoming get the same two votes as 25 million who live in California. It may be one person, one vote, but it is surely not one vote, one voice. As a result, politics have changed in the United States or challenge to the status quo has often fallen to social movements. Movements uh, articulated as movements of moral reform, actually modeled on the Great Awakenings of the 1830s and 40s that launched the Baptist and Methodist churches in this country. Movements that combine personal change with institutional change and political change that link local, state, and national organization in order to overcome the fragmentation of American uh, governmental structure. These kinds of movements that fought for temperance, abolition, women's suffrage, agrarian reform, labor reform, progressivism, civil rights, environmentalism, gender equity, and yes, also right-wing reactions to those reforms. When these movements expand equality of voice, they can strengthen democracy. When they narrow equality of voice, they weaken the democracy. So political change in America has always been a dance between social movements, parties, and the interaction between the two. Unfortunately, the dominant public policy responses to the very real challenges of the last 40 years of globalizing, of financializing the economy, of digi digitalizing all forms of communication, the dominant policy responses have been to privatize, to marketize, including marketizing politics, and look to uh, private philanthropy to address public problems. The, uh, well, and not to mention the creation of intention budget, intentional budget deficits by the Reagan, Bush, and Trump administrations, all of which adds up to the weakening of the capacity of democratic government to respond effectively to the challenges of our time. Critically important to that fast moment 50 years ago was the disaggregation of the struggle for racial justice from that for economic justice and later for gender justice. As a result, as the American economic power structure narrowed, individuals from marginalized constituencies were given, individuals were given access, while the majority of these constituencies, including the white working poor, became more and more constrained by economic inequality and all that went with it in terms of education, health, dignity, and all the rest. Absent any compelling alternative, and here I'm speaking about the Democratic Party, a right-wing movement rooted in reaction to the role of the federal government 
in civil rights, women's and environmental movements in the 1960s, linked with a business-based anti-government, anti-tax, anti-regulation, free market uh, response to the economic challenges of the 1970s. They combined to leverage control over the Republican Party into control of the government, the very institution they are hell-bent on ravaging. This politics delegitimated democratic government, marginalized political and public institutions, lionized private wealth, of which Donald Trump is the poster child. Trump is unique in the depth of his moral and empirical nihilism, sociopathic focus on personal domination, and dangerously erratic narcissism. But he and his wrecking crew are more the effect than the cause. For many, Trump's election was a moment they realized America is in trouble, what Archon was describing. For others who have known trouble all their lives, it was much less of a surprise than a sudden and direct threat. Those who see polarization as an on the one hand and on the other hand would be well advised to note the absence of this kind of polarization leading up to the election of Barack Obama in 2008 as well as the be its beginning with a commitment by Republican legislative leadership to do everything in their power to make his presidency a failure. Who's polarizing? Who's drawing the lines? Who's saying no to compromise, conciliation, and collaboration? Today, the vast majority of the American public wants controls on guns. 80%? What's happening? Nothing. And just yesterday, we had 10 more deaths. We had the visit here from the Parkland students about last month, remarkable young people, confronting a real horror with the moral resources to turn it into a moment of hopefulness. What an extraordinary kind of moral resource, and how they, how they sparked uh, a, a hopeful response among young people across the country and all of us. Yesterday, once again, will Congress move? No not going to do anything, because in many ways it is, it is in the electoral system that we've got these problems and the kind of freeze that we have in Washington. I'm not sure polarization is the best way to describe it. I think of it more, frankly, as a sort of right-wing hijacking of the American government. And, and <laughs> you can see it's not popular with everybody, but that's, that's why we're here. We're supposed to be agitational. Now, but this can be a moment of unique opportunity uh, to renew the promise of America based on the realization that a democracy that doesn't work for all of us cannot work ultimately for any of us. So how we respond really matters. In the US, hope has begun to focus on November 6, 2018, when we return to the polls to choose occupants for 435 House seats, 33 Senate seats, 36 governors, mayors of 23 of our largest cities, 6,066 state legislators, and untold others. Pundits speculate on whether this vote will deliver a verdict on the Trump presidency, and if so, what that verdict will be. Democrats hope for a blue wave, and Republicans hope the tax cut will take care of their problems. The question really is how we can organize ourselves, not only to get more votes, but to get those votes in ways that rebuild the democratic infrastructure that has eroded so seriously in this country for the last 30 years. 
The potential is there. The response of thousands of people who turned up at the airports across the country to protest the Muslim ban. The blossoming of literally thousands of local grassroots groups all across the country, peopled by many for whom it is their first engagement in politics. The nationwide response to the young people of Parkland, Florida. The West Virginia teachers who sparked a wave of red state strikes among teachers, not only for improving their wages and working conditions, but for the viability of public education itself. Mayors and governors across the country, many of whom we've been working with, rebuilding civic capacity city by city and state by state. All these are signs of life, the motivation, which if translated into political muscle uh, can result in winning. At the most practical level, we can invest millions of dollars in dueling algorithms, polls, and advertising that leave nothing behind after Election Day. Or we can invest in using this opportunity to organize millions of people to rebuild our power at city, state, and nation, a mission for which Election Day can only be a new beginning. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Marshall. Uh, why don't we do just maybe one or two more questions and then we'll open it up so I have plenty of time for exchange. Uh, to Pippa uh, and, then, and then I guess then to Marshall also, uh, is, the expect, is your expectation looking into the future, whether the future is four years or eight years or maybe 12 years, do you think that the moment that we're in here in this moment of insurgency or populism, whatever, however you want to characterize it, is like a fever that will break and then we'll kind of go back to a calmer 90s, 2000s, Jeb Bush, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, David Cameron, Tony Blair, normal? Or are we here to stay and we better fasten our feet seat belts? So, Arkan, I think that's a really good question. And my argument is that we're here to stay for the foreseeable future. <laughs> because it depends on how we see the explanation of what's going on. And for me and for my research, it's really about a generational shift, uh, which has been changing the values in many, many countries, which has been transforming the politics. And it's a new set of issues. If it was about left-right, if it was about the economy, then you can cut the cake in lots of different ways. And the Democrats can respond. They can think about all sorts of job training programs, infrastructure programs, investment in the poorer communities, etc., that could be seen as effective. If, however, as we argue, it's a generational shift, then what's happened is that many, many values in society, not just in America, but across most of the countries we've been thinking about, have been really transforming themselves, especially amongst the younger generations. So whether we're talking about things like the transformation in gay rights, or say, attitudes towards gay marriage, think about attitudes towards women in politics and, and women's leadership, think about attitudes towards the environment. These are things which have transformed the younger generation who've been moving in, into society but as a result, there are many, many groups who feel threatened. They feel threatened because they don't believe in these values. And things such as religion has been on the decline. They feel threatened by cosmopolitanization and globalization. They feel threatened by the changes in society. So it's just as you said that people feel that the society they know, the America of the 1950s, is no longer the America they're living in. And there's a tipping point. And that tipping point is where the younger generation are moving into politics, and they are protesting, absolutely. 
but as we saw, not always having a big impact on public policy. The older generation who feels this backlash is the group who feels that they need a champion because their voice hasn't been heard, and people like Donald Trump stand for that champion. And that group is gradually, in the very, very, very long time, going to decline as a proportion of the electorate. Problem is, young people don't vote, older people still do. So even though the older generations are now increasing a minority in the culture, and the tipping point has moved them into a minority, that's why they feel threatened. But they continue to be active, and they're overrepresented. There's a representation gap, basically. Yes. And if young people could get out of bed, on the day of Brexit, I remember telling our students, you really have to vote. You know, you just can't, can't ignore this. This is your future. This is you in Europe. If you want to be part of the world, then you need to get out and vote, and they didn't. And if, for example, we think about turnout levels, an enormous gap that's always been there, uh, it's nothing new, but it really does exacerbate these cleavages in political culture, and it means that in the long term, uh, in the very, very long term, then the older generation will, with their values, will gradually peter out as a proportion of the population, the younger generation will come in, but that might be 30 or 40 years from now. It's not going to be four years, it's not going to be eight years. And we have no idea what that political configuration would look like in, in that amount, presumably. That's right. Marshall, what do you think? A fever yeah. or that'll snap back or fasten your seatbelt? You know, I, w one of the things uh, as I grow older is increasing respect for contingency. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I think it mattered a whole lot who was elected in 2000. A whole lot. Uh, I think it uh, is mattering a whole lot right now. Uh, I think that how we respond to these challenges and these moments of flux have everything to do with what comes out of them, which is not to, to deny the significance of long-range trends. But, you know, it's a debate in social science between structure and agency. Mm -hmm. And what's the balance? How much is determined and how much can we shape? And I think probably my orientation, ever since I read a, a social uh, movement uh, article that argued that our work in the farm workers had nothing to do with our success, that it, was sure, <laughs> that it was all the times that made the difference. I've reacted to that and tried to focus on agency and where the opportunities uh, arise to defy probability with possibility. Because it's that kind of imagination that builds social movements and that initiates social change. So I, I certainly agree that, that anxiety of status, of future, of the rest, provokes what I would describe as a politically pathological response. In other words, where our institutions don't, incur don't, in whoops, don't incorporate, secure, offer pathways to express uh, difference, like the trade union movement did for many, many years, then what happens is that disarray results in a kind of pathological reaction, which is much of what we saw in Europe in the 1930s. It was the failure of democratic institutions to incorporate everybody in terms of their needs that then create a kind of looseness, uh, a, a search that can go anywhere, and it's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. So for me, the problem's not just about authoritarians. It's about what creates the conditions for authoritarians. And from my perspective, it's a failure of democratic inclusiveness. It's a failure of social democracy. It's a failure of recognizing that human beings have hearts, they have heads, they have hands. And unless our system provides a way for them to express that fully, uh, then we're, uh, we get into trouble. Great. 
So uh, Dr. King famously said that the moral arc of the universe is long but bends toward justice. For each of you, and maybe with Pippa first, what are the one or two things that ought to be done and who ought to do them to bend that long arc back toward democracy? So clearly there's a whole resistance and the argument is we have to organize, we have to get active, we have to mobilize, we can't sit on our hands and clearly that's going on. The energy and turnout is going to be critical in the next election and indeed uh, throughout all the other countries as well. But that's not necessarily going to be enough. Uh, and again, contingency can happen for all sorts of reasons. Second thing can be constitutional, structural, institutional reform. And again, Arkham mentioned some of those issues, for example, the Electoral College. Uh, if there hadn't been the Electoral College, we wouldn't all be sitting here talking about populism today uh, or waking <laughs> up at four in the morning worried about the latest tweet. So there are structures in particular in the United States which are very, very, very rigid the majoritarian two-party system, the way in which we have essentially uh, a majoritarian electoral system and you can only vote for one candidate in one area, the ways in which the Senate overrepresents rural areas. I mean, there are many, many things. Problem is, as we know, constitutional change in America, <laughs> 10 times more difficult than in many other countries. In Europe, for example, Britain went through a tremendous range of electoral reforms, constitutional reforms, because there was no written constitution. Uh, my, my students always get shocked when I say that, but nevertheless, there is no written constitution in Britain. Um, so it's difficult to do those constitutional changes, but they could be long-term fixes for the sort of problems that we're thinking about under different sort of arrangements. Again, if you could imagine, for example, an America that wasn't a two-party system, you could easily think about different groups each having their own voice, each having their own representation, each having their own way to try to influence the policy process, but we're so fixed, and by the way, we were one of the very few countries which is a two-party system. Nearly everywhere else will have five, six, seven parties or more uh, through proportional representation. So if we could ever get those reforms introduced, I think they could make a fundamental difference to winner-take-all politics, adversarial politics and polarization. Uh, Catch-22, how do you do that, given the tradition and the strength of the Constitution in America? And of course, if you open up constitutional reform, it might not all go in one direction by any means. Uh, things could easily get worse as much as they could get contingency. A better. friend of mine in the Labour Party uh, informed me a few weeks ago that a, a settled part of the Labour Party platform is that the voting age will drop to 16. That's right. And so the it's only a matter of time before Labour you know, gets, some, gets a majority again. And as soon as that happens, the voting age will drop to 16. And you know, for an American, that's just unimaginable that change would happen like that in, in that structural way. Yeah, I, I think, is this working? Right. Yeah, yeah. Hear me? You're, yeah. You're the, um, no, the challenge of constitutional reform in this country is clearly uh, a major one. Maybe I'll hold it. Is this okay? <laughs> All right. No, it's, it's clearly a major challenge. Um, of course, we came very close to getting rid of the Electoral College uh, in the 70s. Very, very close. And it was only a few like last minute maneuvers that kept that from happening. That's part of my respect for the power of contingency, the opportunity. I mean, from my perspective, uh, the, the, the issue right now is how to make the most of November and how to, how to open up opportunities that way. Now, I don't think that's just uh, a matter of politics as usual. Um, you know, um, Obama, when Obama ran, there was sort of this politics of hope. And uh, it was sort of a moment of, um, uh, how do we say it, Dis uh, suspension of disbelief that things could change. And a lot of us were involved in that. 
Uh, and then th things didn't change as much as we had hoped they would. Uh, and in fact, it created an opportunity for what we're having to deal with now from my perspective. Now we're dealing with a different side of it. It's interesting, I, ch I, I talked with one of my colleagues uh, uh, here in the political science department. He was pointing out that the big shift from Obama to Trump was in less educated white voters. And it shifted by like six, seven points. So it's kind of like that didn't work, so now what about this? So the challenge from my point of view is not just about which policy proposal, it's about a positive vision, it, like resistance is not enough. You gotta be for what we're for. The articulation of what we're for is a major challenge. It didn't happen from the Democratic candidate in the last election. It didn't happen. And so that to me is a number one challenge. Translating that into, politic, into policy that expresses those values. Not uh, details of policy wonkery, but something like what the Kennedy administration did with the Peace Corps, or with putting a man on the moon, or what Trump did with his wall. I mean, concrete, so to speak, policy, but that clearly reflects a set of values that, that, that are connected one to the other. And finally, uh, getting out of this branding, marketing orientation to elections as if they were advertising campaigns and getting back to engaging people with one another in real ways, which is really what politics is all about. Not marketing, but politics. It's organization and it's engaging people with each other. I think there's a great opportunity for that. Uh, Thetis Gospel did a recent piece on the thousands of local groups out there. Now, the challenge is linking them and focusing and harnessing. So from my perspective, I think there's a great opportunity this year. And the question is, will we take advantage of it? Great. Thank you very much. So uh, we have plenty of time for some exchange and for questions. I'm sure that people have a lot on their minds at this point. Uh, so if you could identify yourself and ask your question, and I'll kind of rotate around the microphones, the four of them, forum style. Yeah. Hi, uh, Michelle Bianco, uh, mid-career 2013. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Took uh, Marshall Gantz's class on public narrative and community organizing, and I'm active duty military. Wow. So I'm still doing that, and Great. I have a commander in chief and I do what I have to do. Um, and when the election was coming around, I had many folks come in and sit down and say, I'm not sure what I'm going to do if this individual gets elected. What advice do you have? As if I was going to tell them, well, then you should just throw in the towel and yeah. you know, um, move on. Um, because that's not why we had our calling to serve. You know, I said, regardless of whoever is in position of power, you know, there are many documents you know, that Bill of Rights, the Constitution, <laughs> that is why we were there. That's right. So those folks put that aside and all of them were still serving and serving happily. You know, Secretary uh, Mattis is there and we're happy about that. So that, <laughs> that helps. But um, in positions of leadership, um, I'm a commanding officer and I have to guide my people, um, but I also have to apolitical. So um, leadership, I, I believe, is about choice and agency. And you mentioned to everyone that uh, both sides feel that agency and I think now um, we're talking about choice and what do we do next and I think if we're grounded in certain positions we feel like our choices are limited as, as opposed to limitless so my question here is you know the digital echo is very real 
So in the absence of a narrative on one side, it's being pumped every day. I mean, in early in the morning, there's, you know, go check out Twitter, and we hear this. And so the narrative is there all the time, and that becomes then our policy and pretty much where I wake up and where am I going to be next day in the world. Um, so, you know, <laughs> facts uh, are often, when we counter it, are seen as elitist or they're told that they're fake. Um, so what is your guidance then for including, uh, for creating inclusive narratives that both sides can rally behind? Because in a apolitical world where maybe in some ways we should be there, how are we then looking maybe November and beyond in creating inclusive narratives that bring both sides back to a middle ground where dignity and respect is 100% appreciated on all sides? Oh, that's easy. Um, <laughs> Uh, you, you, you know, it reminds me of the, the story about Will Rogers, the, the, the uh, comedian in the uh, late 1930s, um, uh, called a press conference in New York that he had an answer to the German submarine problem. And so uh, all, the press came, said, Mr. Rogers, what's the solution? He says, well, what we need to do is boil the ocean, and then they'll all come to the surface, and then we can shoot them. And they said, well, that's great, Mr. Rogers, but how do we boil the ocean? He said, I've given you the solution, just work out the details. <laughs> and it feels just a little bit like that kind of question. Now, we did an interesting workshop here a, couple of, a few weeks ago with veterans, um, uh, working on, use, on, on telling their stories to reconnect across the, the military-civilian divide, not based on the war stories, but based on why people were called to serve in the first place, and it was a very, very moving uh, event uh, organized by Sia, uh, uh, sorry about that, Sia, who's also a serving uh, officer uh, in, in the military. Um, but I think that there are, there are competing narratives. And uh, the Obama narrative was about inclusion, it was about equality, it was about compassion, and it was about respect. That's not the Trump narrative, that is a very different narrative. We have genuine values conflicts, and, and we have to recognize those, and politics is about sort of fighting those values conflicts out. If we have a healthy political system, it allows us to do that. Now, what ought to transcend it is commitment to the system itself, is commitment to democracy, and that, frankly, is where I think there is also a problematic thing going on right now that even threatens to fracture that narrative. That narrative is where I see you're coming from. You know, there are these core values that we need to defend and protect and need to honor those who've committed their lives to defending them. But there are also moments that they're breached. And then we're confronted with really tough choices. So again, to pick up a little bit on that, some of my other work I've been doing is about electoral integrity. And my real fear, of course, of 2018 is not really essentially who wins that particular set of seats, although that's getting very close, by the way, in the polls, but it's really about whether we can agree on the results and whether there's going to be so much contention. Uh, and there are so many issues, in particular when people say that elections are fraudulent and when 60% of Republicans agree that millions of votes were somehow stolen in the last election because of the repeated message which they're getting, when people feel that they can't trust the media or they can only trust their media, not the other media, when people feel that they can't basically go along with the rules of the game. That's when you're getting really to a very dangerous point. And you could see if there was a close election and there were again allegations of fraud on any side 
or allegations of voter suppression, or allegations of gerrymandering, or allegations of unfairness in general, because it is on both sides, I think, in that particular regard, then you'll get into a very dangerous situation. We need to think about some very practical reforms to get groups to talk about how we can actually improve the electoral system in America. And there are some good points on that. Gerrymandering through the courts is certainly being looked at very seriously. And there are some other issues which are going on which, again, are, are gradually changing. But uh, that, for me, could be a, a very dangerous point. Good. I like Marshall's frame a lot. There are uh, some whatever your political side is, some left values and some right values, and democracy is about having it out in that way. And then there are another set of values that are democratic values. And I think part of the integrity of America, of, of any society, of any democratic society, depends on a large set of the population believing in those values more importantly than their particular political values, their left or right political values. My conservative father-in-law uh, flew Tomcats in Vietnam and you know, is very much uh, along those lines. Right? He believes that there's a set of American democratic values about the institutions. And my worry is that that common set of values is thinning out in, in favor of the left values and the right values getting pumped up. So, um, you know, in America, we've had since the 1970s a, a public system of presidential campaign finance, right? Uh, who was the first presidential candidate to break that agreement? To you know. Barack, Barack Obama. Obama, right? Barack Obama, right? Because he had a sort of set of commitments to his political values that said, okay, well, I need to, to for a moment, step away and chip away at that democratic set of values about public financing in order for my social justice values, right? They're not the same thing. And so that, that's kind of what I'm worried about. And one of the things I'm trying to think about with colleagues here at the Kennedy School is what are some concrete things in that third set, that democracy set? And it's kind of hard to think about what those things are these days. So uh, one thing, you, you guys can see whether or not you agree with this. Uh, next, when, when this class comes in, uh, the next Kennedy School class in uh, late August and early September, the Kennedy School next year will commit to registering 90% of U.S. Kennedy School students to vote on the idea that whatever your politics are, you should believe that everybody ought to participate in the political process, right? Maybe that's one of the values in that third set. Maybe there's some others, you know, tweet them to me, email them to me, and we'll try to, try to elevate them. Yes. Hi, good morning. Abigail Abstrom, uh, MPP class of 88. I wanted to um, have a question about an earlier comment that younger people are not voting and also touching on what you just said. Uh, in every part of government, we're providing services. People are able to request services, get information online, on mobile apps. What is the status of electronic voting? And if we can really make that happen, is that going to really turn the tide on younger people not registering and not voting? This is a PIPA question. I well, think. it is. Uh, so we did some experiments about that to see whether or not if there was online voting through your app or through televisions even, teletext and a variety of things, whether it would get younger people engaged or whether it could push up turnout in general. And they did this with real votes in real local elections in Britain. The result was that the only thing which really pushed up turnout by quite a lot was mailing postal votes, because that reduced the time. Who was it who used it? I'm afraid it was people like my mother, who already <laughs> still write letters and have postage stamps and things like that. The, in, the electronic things didn't actually change the equation one way or the other, because it's really not about pushing that button or how difficult it is on the day. It's about 
is there choice? Are these issues the ones which I care about? Are there p candidates who I know about? Is there information that's easily available? Etc., uh, etc. Et so we keep on trying to make voting more convenient, and that's good. We should make, for example, the time of registering much longer. Election day registering is great, and there's a variety of practical on-the-ground reforms you can do. But it won't change this age gap, which has been there ever since the 1960s when we first started looking at it. It's really well established. If only those over uh, 45 had voted, uh, then clearly uh, Trump would be in. If only those who are under 45 had voted, Hillary would be in by a mile. So it's an enormous gap but we, we, it's not going to be changed just by technology, just unfortunately. By, by the way, also, there are all sorts of problems as soon as you try and open up internet voting. Uh, the places which have tried it, they still haven't got their security right. Think about the number of cases, for example, even on Facebook where our, our, our private stuff has gone out in various places. We start to use the internet. Think about the risks of Russian meddling in those particular forms of software as well, because our machines are old, they're not up to date, some places are still using Windows 2000 to register voters and so on. Um, so it, could, it can open up a whole range of problems, and it probably won't quite get the, the real issues that we need to get at, unfortunately. Yeah, just quickly to add on that, we, we think the answer is to reduce the cost of voting by making it easier, when in reality the problem is the motivation to vote. That's right. And unless we figure out ways to enhance the motivation, it doesn't change. Although on the cost of voting, I will take the opportunity to uh, <laughs> plug a couple Kennedy School alums, uh, uh, Seth Flaxman and Katie Peters, who created a democracy startup called TurboVote. You should all check it out and, uh, and put it out in your social networks. You sign up to TurboVote, and it is designed to reduce the cost of voting. So you sign up, and they'll ping you when, whenever you're eligible for an election, if you're eligible in a vote-by-mail state. The, you'll get sent the uh, remote ballot. I'm told that it's more difficult to vote in America than anywhere else in the world. Right. And we have more I don't know, I have no way of knowing whether that's true, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's, it's remarkable. It yeah. How you doing? Um, I was wondering, you a couple of issues that you touched on but didn't get into, and it relates to choice. If you think about the administrations we've had, the whole issue of the, uh, and the economy, and I'll say administrations in terms of wars, it seems like whether there's a Republican or a Democrat, we seem to find ourselves in the same, you know, I don't know, tunnel. Um, we're pretty belligerent, and that affects us. And then finally, the economy. I know you had sort of downplayed the economy as an issue, but I think it plays big for a lot of people. Any reaction to that? So the economy is clearly one of the bread and butter issues. Uh, on the other hand, the American economy is going really very well right now, if you look at a number of different indicators. And when you look at the whole phenomena of populism across different countries, what you find is we often associate it, so we say, well, it's unemployment, it's the euro crisis, it's all the problems about financial banking of 2007 that de destabilized lots of countries. Problem is that populists have taken off in rich countries, which are some of the most affluent, with some of the greatest welfare states in the world, like Sweden or Finland or Norway, progress parties in government in, in Norway, as much as it is in some of the countries which have had a whole range of really fundamental economic problems, like Greece, where Golden Dawn has taken off, or like Spain, where Podemos is trying to make break through and so on. So it doesn't seem that the economic explanation is the easiest one to really account for this phenomena. And as a result, that's why I'm arguing that it's probably not going to be an economic solution. That even if the economy bounces back in all parts of America, it's still not going to get over these educational differences or the differences in values which are really at the heart of the kind of uh, issues that we've got. 
Uh, and just to come back a little bit, if I can, also to a point which we made earlier, I mean, it would be great if we could have a conversation and we could listen to each other and we can work out where people are and try to have more of a socially tolerant views across different parties. Problem is that the value cleavages are so deep and that the Democratic Party themselves are not going to turn back on many of the fundamental changes they've made in their social values. So values aren't like um, the economy. The economy you can cut up in different places, you can use more money spending on that, more taxes on that. With values, whether it's race, immigration, women, uh, gay rights, they're not the sort of things which people are so easy to compromise on, and certainly in the Democratic Party, they're not the sort of values which I think the Democratic Party is easily going to be able to compromise on as well. That's where the difficulties are. Yeah, I, I, I have a differing view. Uh, <laughs> no, not entirely, because it seems to me it's very hard to disaggregate um, uh, values, uh, class uh, values. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest predictors of uh, Trump voters were, is education. Uh, and, uh, and of course, levels of education are associated with economic status, very much so, especially prospectively. And so if you are anxious about the future or the future for your children because you don't have access to education or are not educated yourselves, and, and of course now, I just read yesterday about the uh, uh, college loan program is, gonna, is, is under attack right now. So you, you cut off pathways to hopefulness of which economics is a fundamental part, but it's not all just dollars and cents, it's about dignity, it's about hope, it's about a person's sense of worth. I mean, you, you take people who've been re-employed in McDonald's jobs, who had factory jobs, that not, that's not just a loss of income, it's also a loss of, of, of dignity, of, of uh, meaning. So I, I think it's difficult to disentangle these things. Uh, the reality, though, is that as this inequality grows, there is an increasing disaffected set of folks. And uh, so, yeah, I, I just, I don't think you can leave economics out of the equation. I think it's pretty fundamental if you understand it in a full sense and not in a very narrow sense. Right. So, I don't, uh, Piketty, Thomas Piketty, uh, is thinking about the, obviously has been thinking about the inequality issue for a while and trying to make a case that what's happened over the last few decades in political parties in Europe and in the United States, we ordinarily think of the center-right as more or less the party of capital and markets and the center-left as kind of a labor party. What he's arguing is that in recent decades, the center-right still the party of business and markets, but the center-left parties, the Democratic Party, some of the labor party, is more or less the party of higher education and the educated, right? The university-based parties uh, are the center-left. And then that creates the obvious question, well, Where's the class in that? Exactly. And maybe that's part of the reason right. for the insurgency. If you, you know, you, nobody's addressing your economic yeah. issues, neither the business and markets nor the university graduates, then maybe you're gonna be looking for something else. I mean, just uh, one of the disappointments, I think, with, uh, with the Obama, Obama administration was putting all that capital into health reform when people all over the country were going nuts about the economy and people were being thrown out of houses, you know, no bankers went to jail. I mean, it was sort of, let's leave the economics aside, let's just deal with this over here. And I think it created a real leadership vacuum in this country. And so, yeah, I think that uh, grappling with that dimension is crucial. Up here, sir. 
thank you. Andre Acevedo, uh, MPP 1993, one of Marshall's <laughs> classmates. Um, and, so Andres, just to say, Andres organized the um, effort that led to my being asked to teach here at the Kennedy School. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, we all owe you a great debt for that. that. That was an easy thing to do because Marshall came in in our first year as a guest lecturer when he was finishing his undergraduate degree over at the yard and gave a guest lecture and blew us all away. And, and I ran into him at a party at the beginning of the second year and said, you should be teaching here. And we made it happen. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we've taught, I think sometimes we, we focus too much on Trump of being, as Trump being the problem. Mm -hmm. He's almost, he's the expression of the disease. And I don't think white working class, poor white working class are really the problem. There's, it seems to me there's been a group of people who have been organizing for the last 40 or 50 years for this opportunity. And my question to you, I mean, whether it's the Mercers, the Koch brothers, and a variety of others, for a long time, they've been laying the groundwork, building the troops up. I mean, the, the speed and efficiency that they've been making it, de deconstructing our government institutions is, to me, astonishing. And it wasn't that this is all being led by Trump. It's being let, that they built that infrastructure beforehand. So my question is, is how do we go about building our own infrastructure to resist that and restore what we had? <laughs> Who'd like to? This is when we turn to the audience and say, what do you think? <laughs> Just, really. I mean, I, I think you're naming a, a critical challenge. You know, uh, there's. Uh, People think it's just all about money, and it's not. I mean, Koch brothers very, very uh, invested so much eff effort in building a strategic infrastructure state by state, in developing leadership, in building a, a capacity to then act on these moments that the Democrats have been incapable of doing. Uh, and I know there's a lot of talk these days uh, about this. There was a big conference last week of funders and organizers to talk about how to actually recognize infrastructure building on the ground when it's really happening. But there's, uh, there's, there remains so much fragmentation, so much kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, issueizing. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, I'm a tree person, so I'm gonna fight for the trees, and you're a fish person, so I can't support you because you're for the fish. And it's kind of <laughs> like going deeper to find those core values that I think we did discover during the Obama campaign that are needed to unite those kinds of efforts with a common focus. It's a major challenge. But, but again, by the way, I heard that the Koch brothers are not in favor of some of the policies because, of course, they're moving away now. They're libertarians. They're not populists. So on trade and on various other things, they're actually funding other groups, including the Democrats for the first time. But in general, I have to say that when you think about some of the, again, insurgency movements which have gone on, there have often been a funder in behind the scenes providing all the kind of money for things like campaigning, but by and large, they've often been very grassroots as well, and it's issues like immigration, and it's issues which uh, are often about uh, the ways in which people are living and the values which they live on, which are the most important things, which are driving these movements, rather than any sort of organized group. So we can often think that there's a, a, a group that we, if we can just get organized like they did, then somehow we can counter it, but maybe it's a much more fundamental issue in many, many more countries 
than, and so this is in some ways just the tip of the iceberg, but not the base of the iceberg, which is in real cultural values and cultural shifts. Very good. Yes, sir, over here. Uh, good afternoon. Oh, good morning. John Zeiler, a class of 98, uh, mid-career masters. And <laughs> my question is for Marshall, putting on his uh, community organizing hat. Uh, I teach eighth grade at a charter school in the South Bronx, civics. And uh, I'm trying to organize... <laughs> I'm trying to organize my students to get a new school built for 1,200 students, which is currently uh, on a platform next to the rail yard with every train that comes out of Grand Central Station goes past our building, built in 1968. Looks more like a medium security prison than a school. Yeah. My question for you, going back to the economic boycott that you were part of with Cesar Chavez, which was such an extraordinary coalition of the growers, the supermarkets, um, and the liquor producers. Fast forward to right here, a year ago, students in Hyde Park organized to get the TD Garden to come up with the $4 million that they never put in to be used for a new community center. My question for you is why isn't more of this being done where it hits the economic pocketbook of the corporations with youth? Great question. Uh, there need to be more people teaching like you are. <laughs> no, really, it's not trivial. If you, if you look at um, what's happened to American public education, uh, civic education, uh, education in history, I mean, it, it, it's disastrous. And the fragmentation, we see the economic fragmentation, the fragmentation in terms of schooling, I mean, it, it's just breathtaking. But, you know, and it's the assault on public education that Betsy DeVos represents, uh, you know, is the culmination and the building of a whole assault on public education. Uh, and so this whole uh, undermining has been a, a big problem. I think that the reawakening that the Parkland kids are stimulating mm -hmm. is an enormous opportunity. Uh, some of the folks I work with uh, did a workshop in, uh, in Miami with 300 high school students about a month ago uh, from all over the state eager to learn this stuff. Cambridge Region Latin here last week had a whole workshop on organizing. A high school senior and sophomore showed up at my office with an organizing manual they'd written, wanted to check it out. So, <laughs> so no, there's some new stuff stirring and you're in a great place for it, but I think what we have to do is, is, is accept the responsibility for the kind of uh, revitalization of civic education that we need in this country. And good luck. <laughs> yes, over here. Don Everly, class of 88, MPA. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is for Pippa. I, you know, we're all trying to understand populism and where it came from and unpacking it all. You know, there's the culture wars, which you alluded to, and there's the economic inequality, which you alluded to, and there's a lot of things going on, the social media tending us toward uh, echo chambers and tribalism and all that. But I think this goes beyond politics because the alienation seems to be a lot deeper. The greatest divide that makes sense to me is educated versus uneducated. And the attitudes that you find spanning left and right, they all think politics is rigged for slightly different reasons. But the animosity 
toward the educated classes across politics, media, academia, et cetera, entertainment, et cetera. It's, it's really almost willfully anti-intellectual. And it means, if I'm right, that the elite carry an enormous burden to A, figure this out, and maybe a very big burden across all these spaces to behave differently. I mean, if we're gonna save our democracy, is there something about the elite classes of which we're all a part that we need to carry as a burden? I mean, I don't know. Please. I mean, I think you're right in your diagnosis that one of the key differences, clearly, predicting voting now much more than it has in the past is education, and the difference in college education and the rest, along with the div divisions between rural and urban, which are, again, miles apart in terms of their values, again, with the differences between women and men and differences between age groups. So these are the things which are really dividing the electorate, and the question then you've got is really, what do we do about that? The problem is that these social groups represent the values which are embodied within them. One of the best predictors, as we know, of liberalism, of social liberalism, has always been education. The more you get to know, the more knowledge you have, the more information you have, and the more that you can have those skills to really understand that, the more liberal people tend to be. The less education you have, the more conservative, socially conservative people tend to be. So it's a major division, and of course our schools are failing partly, uh, to actually uh, provide those kind of opportunities. But, but it's really difficult to say, you can't say that it's essentially that the educated groups therefore have to uh, work out how to respond, or that those without the college education have to listen to those with the education. It's just a basic division in society which has emerged, which is enormous, and which has been exacerbated. There's a good new book called Diploma Democracy, which looks at uh, the ways in which those who are part of um, the educated group feel that they're part of the world, they feel cosmopolitan, yeah. that they can go anywhere, that they've got opportunities. And, uh, th they, and they do, so it's not just a myth, that is what they feel. If you don't have those skills, you don't have those qualifications, you don't have those abilities, and you don't have those values either, then of course you're going to feel that being put upon by all the educated groups. They don't respect you. And the simple truth from my book is, they, don't they feel they don't, they're not being respected because their values are not being respected. In other words, they're often very traditional values. They're values which are out of step with where contemporary society has moved on many different issues. And, and so how you reconcile those differences, I'm really not, not sure, and I wouldn't go for any simple solutions because it seems to be a universal issue. You know, if, I, I, if I could just add one thing. I think I heard you asking, what responsibility do elites have yes. to cross the gap? Yes. And I think it's an enormous responsibility. And w when I was saying earlier that democracy that doesn't work for everyone ultimately will work for no one, uh, that w is what I saw buried in what you were asking. And yeah, there is a major role for elite responsibility to, uh, instead of uh, the screwed up educational system we have right now, to invest in transforming it. Uh, and in the elitist bias is so great in discussions of policy and all the rest of it, because the voices not at the table are not at the table. And, and that's why we've got one of the problems we have. So here, here. You know, um, <coughs> following up on Marshall's point, I, I really like the question of how do experts and elites need to engage differently given the gulf and the distrust? There's a transformation in medical education over the last couple of That's decades right. in which doctors take patients much more seriously right. than they used to as autonomous actors. And this is only a half facetious, uh, facetious idea. I think we should teach a class at the Kennedy School on expert apologies, right? I mean, if, so, if a doctor was taking care of your mom and he messed up, you know, you'd be 
pissed about it, but it, uh, an apology and some humility would go some distance to closing that gap, right? And so, you know, think about the huge expert errors that we've, and I, I do mean we, have made, right? I was sitting where you are watching a panel in the run-up to the Gulf War of international security experts up here. And for them, it was a question of not if, but when, right? And so as a result of that march to war, my son, who's 16 years old, his whole life, we've been at war. You wouldn't know it in 02138, but it is actually the case. I haven't heard too many apologies about that. I haven't heard too many apologies about uh, the absence of any uh, sensibility that a financial crisis was coming in 07, 08. That was a wrong call. I haven't apologized, probably I should, probably a lot of political scientists should apologize about just having no clue about the outcome of the 2016 election, right? I mean, we need to have a little bit more humility about <laughs> how we do things, because right. we're entrusted to, yeah. like doctors, to yeah. help people navigate this extremely complex world that we're in, and we, when we get it wrong, we, we owe a little bit more. You know, one of, one of the problems of thinking of leadership as knowing, as opposed to learning, yeah, uh, right. is, yes. uh, is a, uh, it's an orientation we cultivate here. Uh, you're gonna be an expert, so then you'll go out and have all the information to answer the world's problems. Uh, except guess what? Uh, <laughs> that's when the learning right. has to really begin. And there is a kind of humility in the recognition that leadership requires continual learning, particularly from the people who are experiencing the problems. And we sort of want to go up here and say, I've got the answer. We saw what happened in the Newark schools uh, with, uh, with that kind of arrogance. So no, I, I think that's a very important reality to cultivate. But, but that's about uh, our skills and our expertise. The real question here is, are we willing to compromise on values? If they're the, they're the difficult issues, and are we going to have a dialogue with those who go along with Trump and go along with populism on issues of sex or race or gender or forms of other forms of identity politics? You can learn. You can learn, but are we willing to compromise in a genuine way? Well, and I'd argue academic life is not particularly good at that. Well, I mean, of course, this school is not just about training academics. Yeah. I mean, in fact... No, no, I mean, as, as, a, as teachers, we're not very willing to compromise on the values. I'm not sure exactly how to respond to that. Uh, I mean, yeah, would I teach from uh, a Trump perspective? Precisely. Probably not. Absolutely not. But I would encourage my students. <laughs> but what I would teach my students is that we are engaged in a process of learning. And, and we've got to take that seriously. There's a, uh, Dave Fleischman in Los Angeles, the LGBTQ uh, uh, Leadership Center, developed what he calls deep canvassing as an approach. Uh, they targeted precincts that uh, voted for Prop 8 in uh, 1908, the marriage equality uh, thing in California, and began sending people into those precincts to figure out how to engage with those people. What they found was they start like with an issue thing which was highly polarized, but then they'd get down to the person and start doing the values work. And you know what, values are not monolithic. We have multiple values. And it turns out that there are values that are shared that can create a foundation for engaging with the differences. Now that takes a lot of work and it takes leadership and it takes organizing. And that's what we've been learning from, for example, that deep canvassing thing. It's why this constant rhetoric about issues kind of misses the point. But I also think to think of values as monolithic, that we have multiple values, we have conflicting values. And in any culture, any 
community, there are different threads that can become ascendant or descendant. And so treating it as a block, an either or, I think is missing the point that values offer an opportunity for connection. Uh, the, uh, the public narrative uh, class that I w teach, we have uh, in the fall, we had 130 students from 31 countries. When you get into uh, engaging with each other's sources of caring, sources of hope, sources of commonality, you discover it's not, you know, well, uh, you know, flowers in May, kumbaya, but you discover potential that is there if you can engage with it. Now that's tough work, and I think that's the work of democracy that we have to learn to do. It, it, so it's, I don't think of it as compromising values, I think of it finding bridges where we can and doing the best we can within that. I'm afraid we have time only for one more question, and it, it's yours up on the second floor there. Hi, I'm Diane Chang, MPP class of 2013. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about a fracturing of values that exists in the U.S. and is also mirrored um, in a lot of other countries, and I think one of these important values is a fundamental agreement on a base set of facts, um, trust and empirical evidence, and I know that's discussed a lot probably in forum events, but... Um, Without this fundamental agreement, right, mm -hmm. we can try all the tactics we want to adjust our constitution, um, our constitutions, adjust our democratic institutions. But if there is a mistrust of who has the right to be, in, you know, making these changes, to be leading these changes, and to be executing the policies, that that undermines all those efforts. So how do we begin to tackle that? Like we've seen this in other countries that where there's endemic corruption. It's a little newer to the U.S. I'm curious to hear what you think. I think you're right, and that, that we really are uh, at odds. And motivated reasoning is very much how we're thinking about this, that people look at the same facts on both sides, but they're looking at it from different information sources, and they both will find that in the facts the things which will help support their priors, their particular opinions, their particular views. So it's where do you get those trusts? And if you're watching Fox News or if you're watching CNN, you're getting different worlds increasingly. And, and, and that's even more the case, of course, if you're using the news feeds in social media, where again, you're getting people reinforcing you, but not uh, challenging you and getting you to think about alternative views. So science is under attack. Uh, and the idea of impartiality and objectivity is under attack by populism as well. And it's very difficult to know how you can actually rebuild that on some basic issues like, for example, climate change. Uh, or issues which are really of concern uh, to the scientific community. So I think that has been fractured in, in our social media bubbles, but there, there were always those divisions, but they've just got wider, um, we're, and the lack of social trust in particular has really reinforced those divisions. So we don't even listen to each other, and we don't even tolerate each other, we don't trust the facts that you give me, because I've got a different set of facts which will support my views. Could I just add to that? I'm, I'm working with a, a group in the sciences here, who, uh, people who are involved in the March, uh, the March for Science, who have uh, recognized that there's a big problem uh, <laughs> in terms of their capacity to communicate with the public yes. and the public to understand what they're saying. And in some ways it comes down to a, uh, a, an issue of faith. I mean, uh, you know, in other words, faith in science is a faith. Yes. In other words, we believe that certain processes will reveal things we call facts. And there are, there are there's a whole other set of folks out there who have a very different faith system. That, you know, climate change is not real. Why, why? Well, they have a different framework in terms of, of, of to what they attribute truth. It's kind of like, how do you get at truth? It's a fundamental epistemological problem. And so there is a, a, an enormous challenge there. 
uh, of narrative uh, and of understanding. Uh, and yeah, it's not easy. What was most encouraging to me was the conversations that have begun over in the science world about how to take responsibility for this yeah. and not just you know take comfort in the elitism of I know the truth, yeah. but actually refiguring how to reestablish a kind of credibility yes. among those that where it's been lost mm -hmm. as to the value of science and scientific uh, process. I think it's a version of the democracy question. I mean, yeah. it's easy right. its easy for us, especially people in higher ed and universities, to think that really the line is between rationality and irrationality. And some of your, the first part of your question suggests that. I guess I think of it more like Marshall was, is, a, is an issue of trust and distrust. How do you know what is true in areas in which you do not possess you know, the full wherewithal to get to first principles? you know it's true because there are some people that you trust who know a lot more than you to have gotten it right, and so you're listening to them, and that's way one, and way two is most people around you think that it's true, so you think, well, okay, I'm queuing off them, it's probably true, and so you proceed on the basis of that, of, of those two things as what basically is a fact or not, and what Marshall, is people trust very different sets of experts now and they live in very different uh, social and epistemic communities. And so that's one fundamental reason why these fact bases are diverging. And the, the truth problem, the fact problem, is like the democracy problem in how do you establish that common ground of uh, trust and a common basis for evaluation. Again, which is certainly a, a very difficult task and one which we all need to set ourselves to, I think. We're back to the Scopes Monkey Trial, right. you know, 1928. <laughs> reading that. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much, everyone. Let's give a big hand for Marshall and Pippa. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.